today, and then I will move on to better things. Well, sorry, other things, not better. Uh, I wasn't sure I had said at the first what I was going to teach on this fourth week, and uh, in my mind, we just talked about these things, and it's been, for those who have been around at the other building, uh, Greg and I taught on singles from this chapter, and it was like five or six years ago. It feels like yesterday. I listened to that again this week. Greg should speak more. He's a very good speaker. Uh, and then in March of 19, that was an interesting month for everybody, um, right before all the COVID stuff hit, we, uh, sorry, that was a year prior, wasn't it? COVID-19, but it was in 2020. Um, March 19, I did a two-part during the Westminster chapter 24 on divorce and remarriage. So those are great resources. Those are all on the website. You've got under the website, the resources tab has all the handouts. And then under the Sunday School, you can go way back through SoundCloud and years and years and years of teaching. So please make yourself available to that. Now, this is a pretty sensitive topic, right? We're not in some ivory tower. We're not sitting around for our ordination right now with a bunch of seminarians. This is real life, right? I'm going to present Paul's teaching. And we have to realize in many ways it, it's, it's an ideal. It is the goal. But for a lot of us, this can be pretty painful. We have single people here who would rather be married, and some people desperately so. We probably have some married people who would rather be single. You're in some hard marriages, loveless marriages, sexless marriages, and you're gonna look at this and think, this doesn't feel like a calling. Maybe there's some emotional abuse or even physical abuse happening in our body, and I hope you can get some help if that's true. Some are struggling with sexual morality, perhaps. There might be someone here in an adulterous affair. Uh, it's almost certainly that somebody here is struggling very hard with pornography. And they come to church every week very guilty and needing of the gospel. And so it's only in the light of the gospel, the free gift of uh, God's grace, that we can actually look at this with open eyes and be honest. Let's not try to mitigate uh, away verses Let's not just throw the whole thing away on some cultural pretense. Let's accept what God has to say. And then let's have the gospel to be cleansed and to, to have some hope for how to walk forward in the future. It's also very possible, if not probable, that Paul is speaking from his own experience. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he should have been married. So it's very possible he is now single and has lost his wife in death. Perhaps she left when he became a Christian. We don't know. So we're going to read the passage here. I just stole the outline straight out of the ESV Bible. I didn't have time to create my own outline. So I'm just going to use this at face value to kind of guide us through the passage. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you to, because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But 
Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But that is it, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is, un is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 
A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Mark, would you mind praying for us? So, I've, I've introduced this series trying to give you some hints of how to study the Bible, so I want to continue that a little bit. So, whenever you study a passage, a um, couple things you want to keep in mind. First of all, think of the immediate context. And there's two things, at least two things that jump to me out. We start the chapter with this now concerning. So, for six chapters, Paul has been responding to the things that has been told to him. In chapter one, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that this is how you're acting, particularly with all these factions. Well, now he's going to start at least seven times. He is specifically responding to some questions they have sent him. Now, we get an idea of what those questions were, but we don't know exactly what they were. So it makes it a bit of a challenge on exactly how do we understand his, his teaching, how do we apply it to our own lives, how specific was it to a specific question that we don't have. So we just have to be a little careful as we go through there. The other thing you saw in verse 26 is, in view of the present distress, so something's going on. Some commentators think it's a worldwide famine that's going on in that area. Uh, some think it's the upcoming persecution of Rome. Either way, somehow his response is in view of that present distress. Again, it's a challenge. What, are we, what universal principles can we draw from this chapter versus some that we might need to soften? If anything, it seems at least the, the weight of his emphasis on being single is tied to that because that's what he says. This, that one. All right, then there's always a broader context. Now, remember, I go to the commentaries, I'm not a historian. So we talked three weeks ago about some of the historical background. Um, we, we read a little bit in Acts um, 18. We know a little bit about Corinth and this audience that he's talking to. A couple of those things that I think apply here is the Hellenistic society was very much emphasis on the individual, my rights, versus worrying about the collective and what's good for the, for the good. And we see his emphasis, as I said, is on Christian unity and thinking about what's good for the body. And that's going to apply to marriage. And it's also, we just know it's a very sexually immoral society. Remember the temple of Aphrodite is there, a thousand pagan priestess prostitutes. The temple of Apollos that glorified the male body and homosexuality. So this is the culture they're coming out with. And certainly, even a couple years into being Christians, they're still affected by this, as we are. We are affected by our culture. The culture before being a Christian and even as a Christian. Our ideas of sex and relationships and marriage are affected by our culture, and we need to be aware of that. And then we also want to look at the book context. Again, at least in an epistle, it's quite clear to me that Paul has some main emphases that he's trying to get across, and it's going to weave all throughout. So you want to think about what are the broader things that Paul is dealing with in the letter that now we can bring into this single chapter and this topic of marriage. I think that's probably the biggest thing I'd like to emphasize because sometimes we do a systematic where we just, you know, run to Matthew 19 and Genesis 1 and 2 and we'll, we'll get all the, all the verses and passages and put them together to have some system of theology. And we have to do that. But sometimes we, we need to 
understand each of those passages in its own context, the authorial intent and everything. So that's kind of what I want to emphasize today uh, that you may not naturally think about. So again, we saw this. There it is, chapter 7. So you would want to sit there and think, okay, in light of everything Paul's talking about, how might I, I look at marriage and, and the gift of singleness in a, in a different light, in a slightly different context? So there's five things that I've come up with. There's three on your handout, and I'll add two more. I had an early deadline this week, so I added a couple more. So those are the three that are on your thing. First thing is unity in factions. Paul isn't so much addressing an issue that the whole Corinthian church has gone down the wrong road and needs to correct them. It, it's probably that there are, they're having disagreements among these factions in Corinth. And so he's helping identify, okay, the, this faction got this thing right, but this faction got this thing right. It, he doesn't go whole hog in any direction. He, it's almost like he's being a little bit of a politician. No, you can't command them not to marry, but there are some really good reasons not to marry. So everyone's kind of getting something and he's trying to steer them to the truth. That's what it seems to be. The other one is apostleship. Paul has very much had to defend himself as an apostle and the role of the apostles in general throughout the letter. And we talked about that two weeks ago quite a bit. Now, this is a very interesting chapter on this topic because Paul is an apostle. He says later, I have given you the command of the Lord. You need to listen to this. But he also, in this chapter, gives us very clear opinions, his judgments. And usually it's pretty clear. Verse 6, he says, now is a concession, not a command. Verse 25, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Verse 40, yet in my judgment, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now I'm a little curious about him giving an opinion and throwing in some more weight. Well, I'm, I have the Spirit of God, so you should really listen to my opinion. I don't exactly know what that's about, but it's very clear he's giving a judgment. And he's not holding them to that. The one that sometimes trips people up is verse 12. So let's, verse 10 first, let's look. He says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, I think this is best understood that he's not giving an opinion in verse 12. He's saying in verse 10, I am repeating to you something that you've already heard from the Lord, from Jesus in his earthly ministry. In verse 12, he's saying something new. You did not hear from the lips of Jesus but he's saying it as a command. He doesn't couch it as a judgment because that would very much color what we think of the next few verses if we take that whole paragraph as, as a command or a judgment. I'll leave that to you to study, but that's, I think, the best way to understand that. And then we have gifts and calling. And of course, that's the title of today's message. That's probably one of the biggest things I want to emphasize is to think about marriage and singleness as a gift, as a calling because Paul has a lot to say about that throughout the book. So that how you think of spiritual gifts, how you think of your role in the body or in society, right, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, a lot of those concepts we also ought to apply to marriage. And we're going to talk a little more about that. Here's a couple more you can add to your sheet. Use the freedom for the gospel, right? We saw that in chapter 9 specifically. It isn't about if you can eat meat or not eat meat. It's it's not about if you're slave or free. The point is, you, where you are called, with the condition in which you are, live that out. Don't be so focused on yourself <laughs> and what I want, right? There's going to be some overlap there, but amidst all that, if you're trying to find yourself, you're trying to figure out what God has for your future, but where you are, don't miss the present. 
Uh, in one of those old lessons, the, um, someone in the audience had made the comment that I didn't feel really ready for marriage until I was content as a single, and then I was ready for marriage. I thought that was a, a great comment. And the last one is one flesh. There's a lot in here. Ephesians 5, we should add to our sheet. Man is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So uh, marriage reflects Christ in the church. And so we see a lot in the letter. We see the Lord's Supper. We see that the, the many members of the body, some are called to be apostles and prophets and teachers, and it's all for the one body. There are many members but one body. That is reflected in marriage. So those last three we're going to talk about a bit more as we walk through the passage. So again, I'm just going to go back to the ESV. Uh, your, your sheet goes back to number one there, but those last four should just be renumbered there, four through seven on your sheet. Sorry for that. So I'm just going to walk through in those three headings that ESV gave me, and I'm just going to walk through the text kind of in order of some major things that I think we can find. And then we'll have a lot of time for comments and questions today. So first is principles of marriage. So just to capture your attention up front, we're going to talk about sex. No, I'm saying that because Paul jumps into it. That's exactly where Paul starts. And again, it's in, in response to a question. First of all, we should say that sex is supposed to be in marriage. Chapter 6, he talked about sex with a prostitute. No, a one flesh activity is meant for a one flesh union. One flesh activity. I'll let you paint your own visual on that. But the, the very act of sex is picturing, is visualizing marriage, the union. The verb give there, to give conjugal rights, is, is the tense there is an ongoing, it's a habitual, continual verb. You were, the, the marriage is supposed to be identified and characterized by an ongoing giving of these conjugal rights. And then when he says not to deprive your spouse, he's using the same word in chapter 6 when he was concerned about lawsuits among brothers. He says, don't defraud your brother. It's the same word here. Don't defraud your wife or defraud your husband. A sexless marriage is a fraud. It's a fake. That's not what it's meant to be, right? People get married expecting sex in the marriage, and that ought to, that ought to happen. Sex is not a reward. Sex is not a useful tool for, to manipulate your spouse. It's not to be reserved for the perfect mood or the perfect en full energy state. Don't say amen or you're going to be in trouble later. <laughs> sex is a right. It's a right in marriage. But notice how the emphasis is not on you demanding your rights from your spouse. It's on you recognizing that it's her right. It's his right. And therefore, I would give to them. It's all about the other person and the, the unity of that, of that marriage bond. All right, monogamy. We looked at this last week. Some cultures need to be emphasized that there's only one spouse. Uh, here it seems the emphasis is on that you can have one. We will see polygamy grow in our culture. You will start to see more and more people accepting it, more laws allowing it. This is coming for sure. Mutuality, we talked about this last week as well. A lot of people have no problem with the wife has no authority over her own body. But look at Paul. Neither does the husband have authority over his body. It's a very mutual. Even though we still believe in gender roles and, and husband and wife roles, there ought to be a, a spirit of mutuality in that relationship because that's what God calls us to. He said in chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Same thing in your marriage. You are not your own. Divorce is to be avoided. Very clear. 
We often want to jump to the exceptions, right? That's where all the interesting discussions come. Let's not pass too quickly over the rule, over the, over the emphasis, right? That is the goal. Divorce is bad. Divorce ought to be questioned. And that's tough. I know that's tough to hear. Marriage is a holy union. Now look at verse 14 first. A little bit of controversy on exactly what's being said. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. He's made holy. Interesting. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So in some way, th this might have to do with the actual holiness of the union itself, objectively. It might have to do with some sanctifying influence on a daily basis in that marriage. Like 1 Peter 3 would say, how do you know you, you won't win, win your husband, right? When he sees your conduct. It probably includes both, right? We definitely as a church understand a, a covenant is made there in marriage. Again, chapter six. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So th this would take many sermons to bear out and I don't think I understand it. Something special. Something unique and mysterious is, happens in a marriage. Something we can't see. They don't look like one, they look like two. But God says they're one. And to rip that union apart is so violent and so disruptive and so destruction, the people will never be the same again. And in that union, you will never be the same again. Those who are looking forward to marriage, you will never be the same again, and you shouldn't be. Something very special is going on there. Again, Ephesians 5, that our marriage reflects the, the relation between the church and Christ. Chapter 12, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Same thing. We as a church look like a bunch of individual members. We have different gifts, different strengths, different weaknesses. But God sees us as a body with Christ as our head. We are one body. The commentary I read, David Pryor, he says this. Look at verse 5. So as a special union, there's a way that we ought to act. Now I'm going to quote David Pryor because I would be a huge hypocrite if I said this on my own. He says, marriage ought to create a special prayer partnership. Remember back in Acts 4, Apollos, who we know about in Corinth, he, he sells the land and he gives it to the apostles. Well, then a, a couple comes up and as a husband and wife, they conspire to deceive everybody and they withhold, I think it was half that money. And they're killed for it. So as a marriage, as a married couple, they worked against the Lord. That's serious stuff to God. Well, on the flip side, verse 5, we see that as a mutual agreement, they might come together to devote themselves to prayer. First Peter 3 talks about that as well. For the sake of your prayers. There is a, a way as, as this mysterious, special union that you can now serve Christ in a, in a new and a unique way that I can't fully explain. But as you wish not be two individual Christians carrying on with your devotions, carrying on with your, your lives, right? There, there can be that, but there's also something together as a couple. We ought to be as part of the body. And the last thing there under this is divorce is sometimes unavoidable. So Matthew 19 and others, and, and in those old Sunday schools, you can, you can hear about the, the quote, exception clause for sexual immorality. Here he's, it's, we would say, desertion or abandonment. 
And it's not necessarily a grounds for divorce. It's not like based on that you're seeking a divorce. It's more of a recognition that you're kind of filing some legal paperwork to reflect reality. The marriage has already been ended for all intents and purposes, right? The the abandonment, there's a separation, there's, there's, there's a rift that is now just being recognized. And I'm not gonna get into a lot of the details. If you wanna explore this more in the comments and question time, we can. But there are some really tricky gray areas here, right? It's very clear if they just leave. I hate you, I'm never coming back. There's all sorts of in-betweens, like, you know, drug abuse. Um, Are they in jail? Like, (laughs) they're there, but they don't really want you there. It's very clear, you don't even talk to each other. There's all those areas, like, does that qualify for desertion? But I think in trying to navigate that, I think we might have some real help here. God has not called you to confusion. He's called you to peace. Says the same thing about tongues and, and prophecies later. He's called us to peace. So that might be a great guide. What would be really reflective of peace in this home, in this situation? All right. Second one is live as you are called. Of course, that kind of hits the whole gifts thing straight on. Chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit such and such gift, to another such and such gift. These are all empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you don't really choose your gift. You might want to work on recognizing it. He actually does tell us that you can work on it. He says you can strive to excel in building up the church. You can develop your gift. But in the end, God has chosen, has gifted you in certain ways, and he will equip you to use that gift for the common good. I think we can apply that to marriage, right? God has given a gift to each one. I think it was in verse 7 he says that. One is called to one and one is called to the other. You don't really get to choose. You don't choose your desires, do you? I'm not saying you're not responsible for your desires. You're responsible how you act on those desires. But you don't really choose your desires, And so, like, in chapters 8 to 10, we talk about the matters pertaining to the law. It's not really about asserting our rights, right? It's not about, I'm free to marry. That's true. But Paul is trying to get us to think out of that individualistic mindset. Um, How can I best use my 80 to 90 years, uh, if God is so gracious, on earth? How am I to use this for the gospel? Who here got married because they thought, that's the way I can be effective for the gospel. Probably not many of us, right? That's what Paul wants us to do. Is your decision to marry based on how I, as a, as a believer in this world, want to get the gospel to others? And I see marriage as the way to do that. That ought to completely transform the way we think about marriage. And then whatever state I'm in, right? When I'm married, am I now using my marriage and my state in life? Am I using my singleness for the gospel? And this is just a wonderful truth. Remember that we're all brides of Christ, right? And in heaven, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage or given to marriage. All you married people are one day going to be single with respect to your current spouse. It's going to be different. And all you single people are going to be married. We're all going to be the same, right? We're the bride of Christ. So there's something very leveling about that, right? We, we are 
it's too easy and too natural to create big divisions in the body and, and think of status symbols. But we're all in this together, and it's just a matter of recognizing different gifts, different callings, and using them in some beautiful harmony, the diversity and the unity as a body and as a revelation to, the, to a lost world. So singles, you are not gonna, God is not withholding his best from you. If you're a single today who desires to be married, God isn't withholding his best from you. Our best is way yet to come. We're gonna look back on this life and think, oh, why was I so concerned about such a thing? So hopefully that gives you some encouragement. Be faithful in your current condition. We've already kind of said that. So this is a challenge. This is a pastoral challenge. So we say, well, God has called some to some. If you have the, the you know, if you burn with passion, then marry. If you don't burn, then you can use your life and do that. But what if you do burn <laughs> with passion and you still can't find a spouse? That's hard. That's really hard. I think you can make the case that spiritual gifts in general can be temporary. Because Paul tells us to pray to be able to speak in tongues, pray to prophesy. We can develop those gifts. So I don't think there's a one gift, this is your gift for life. I think God can come and go, the Spirit can come and use you at certain times. I think that's true in marriage. Maybe you have the passion, maybe God will grant you a spouse one day. But right now, you could say in a sense, right now, we know you're called to be single because you're single, at least in a providential sense. I'm not saying not to continue looking for a spouse, but don't so live in the future. Live in the here and now, because whatever Paul sees as an advantage of singles is true for you right now. Right? You have time. You have what which will give you energy. You have ability to maneuver. You have less accountability. You have less troubles and anxieties in the world. So use that for the gospel. Don't, don't spend double the time on Instagram or on Netflix, right? Use that opportunity for the gospel. And I would be a horrible singer. I, I'm, not, I'm not casting judgment because I've, I've learned that as I've, as I've gotten freer with, with children who have grown up and are post high school. I, wow, I got married right away. I had no idea how bad I was at managing my time. Right, my responsibilities were laid out for me. Right, it was, I thought I was good at things. Cause it, but no, I, I never had to make decisions. It was made for me and I just go and it was kind of simple in some sense. So I've been humbled in a lot of years by that. All right, so the last section we have is the unmarried and the widows. You are free to marry, yet only the Lord. I think it was a year and a half ago or so, we talked, we had one on, is it right to date an unbeliever? You could go back and listen to that. I already got into this a bit. Marriage brings troubles <laughs> that compete with an undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's big intent. It isn't so much about your marital status. He wants you to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. Can you do that in a marriage? That's his concern for you. Because if you can't, maybe God is calling you to something else. You go, go, go back and listen to what Greg had to say. He basically had a plead to the married in his church, in our church, quit trying to set me up all the time. Please quit pitying me and looking down at me as if I'm something less, as if I'm somehow incomplete or unhappy as a single person. There are ways that we married people can minister to singles that are far more important than finding them a spouse. I'm not saying that's not important. For instance, maybe we need to help them manage their time. They might need that. And single people, I've, I've learned, because Greg and I meet very often now, I've learned what it means to be single, especially someone who's older as a single. Like, 
I think Greg has taught me so much about friendship that I would never know otherwise. Um, so we, we have a reason that we need to be with each other and around each other. Invite each other into our homes. Don't stay in our cliques of married and singles. Part of what I want my single children to look for in a godly spouse is someone who is devoted to the Lord, who I, they see active in their local church. Because they're not going to magically change overnight when they get married. What kind of a spouse do you want? How do you see them operating? How do they, you see them relating to their parents and to the body? Do they care about the Lord? Because if they don't, it might be time to wait for maturity or look for someone else. So therefore, you singles, <laughs> what kind of a spouse do you want your spouse looking for? Right? Be the kind of person that you would want your godly spouse to be looking for in you. All right. It's the nitty-gritty. I have two more questions up there that aren't on your sheet. Let me just uh, maybe intro them a little bit, but I really want to open up. I will own the mic. You will wait for me to come to you. Um, does Paul believe Genesis 2.18 is not good for man to be alone? Seems like maybe a theological challenge between Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, number two, in light of temptations, Paul is very worried about sexual temptations. If you burn with passion, then marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. So what are you people waiting on? Is this a smart thing? A lot of people wait to finish their college, finish military training, finish whatever. They're waiting on something to get there, but they're convinced they've found their spouse. There's probably some pastoral wisdom we need to talk about in there. Should married couples necessarily pursue children? It kind of seems in verse 14 that this is maybe soft. It's not very hard in the chapter, but... Children are kind of an assumption in a marriage. Of course, maybe that's because they had no birth control back then. But should, and that, that is a broader marriage question. Should couples necessarily pursue children? Or do they have the right? You have the right to remain unmarried. Do you as, have, as a married couple, the right to abstain from children for the sake of service to the Lord? Right? You could carry on that, that thinking. Does lawful divorce assume lawful remarriage? That's a big topic. We're never going to get through all these today, so I'm just going to let you decide what we talk about. Uh, verse 15 is specifically about your unbelieving spouse leaving you. Are we allowed to apply that to a believing spouse leaving you? Uh, was what I want to... Uh, number seven I'll go to. In the Lord, is that sufficient? As long as they have a profession of faith, that's enough? Or should I be looking for some more? Should they be Reformed? Should they be Presbyterian? Should they hold my views on pedo-baptism? How close do we need to be? Should we be close at age? Uh, should we have similar interests? What, it, or is it in the Lord? Checks the box. End of discussion. No one can judge me on this. Should we be looking for, quote, the one? There's one that God has left me and wait for them. Or is it, is it kind of settling with that negative connotation? Well, they're in the Lord and they're available. I don't see anything else. Is settling a bad thing? And then the questions up there. I realize I neglected the singleness in my questions. So it does seem that he's saying, well, some have one, one um, calling and one have another. It's almost like equal footing, almost like we would have 50-50 singles and married. Now, I've talked about the present distress that might challenge that, but we, we do tend to assume marriage. Now that I've said that, listen to the next eight sermons and Sunday school teachings. We, and in our conversations, Greg has helped me to see this greatly. We do kind of assume people would be married or are pursuing marriage. Is that right to do? 
even though the majority are married, is that right to do? Is it a fault that usually we call men to the pulpit who are married, right? So that that's their world. Think about that as you're, as you're teaching and, and conversing. Is that a good assumption? Is it a bad assumption? And then should we have segregated small groups? Should we have a couple's ministry? Should we have a single's ministry? Or should we just stick with community groups where everyone's together? All right. Um, first question or comment. You can ideally take it from the 10, but you don't have to. Flip-flop. Um, as many of you know, my wife and I got married. She could not have kids. So one of the discussions that we had quite a bit was pursuing spiritual children. And that's what we've been doing uh, since we've been married. And yeah. it's been an awesome thing. Um, you know, she was really apprehensive about marrying me because she thought I wanted kids. And I actually didn't want kids, so it kind of worked out the way we wanted it to. So. And then Paul talks in this letter about being their spiritual father in the gospel. Someone else. I'll be gentle. There's no way. Uh, the second question that says, in light of temptation, should a couple delay marriage to get a degree, job, house, or et cetera, and why? Well, I'm asking you. No, I don't want you to answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do you guys think? What is, um, any, anybody want to comment on that one? As Mark and I grew up, one of the things our parents, I don't know if they ever said it, was that um, we'll continue to pay for your college. Well, for me, Mark paid for his own. But um, so I think that was generational. So one of the conversations we had was that we would pay for college, whether they were married or not, that um, that wouldn't be a barrier, mostly for that reason. You, you were happy that they would not finish college first? That Okay, we talked about it. Anyone else on that specific question? And then you can follow it up with another question. I think that's a like fairly recent mindset. I think it, uh, it's very American. Uh, it feels very post-World War II uh, that you, know, you have to establish yourself uh, in your career. You have to establish yourself. And I think you know, as lifespans have gotten longer, people are... Um, but I, I think it's it's really dangerous um, because like to, for for me uh, and Kathy uh, I met her I desperately wanted to date her she said no and uh, then it, there was a you know I was like well I, I really feel like I, I really want to anyway so I tricked her into it and then and within six months we were engaged and uh, six months later after that we were married because uh, you, you got to lock that down. I think that, you know, it's, a, it, it's really important to find the person uh, that uh, you know, the Lord is calling you to or wh however you're going to uh, phrase that. Um, and then, uh, you know, get married. If you are called to marriage, get married. 
Yeah, some things I thought of on this were, well, if you're physically separated, like away to college, that kind of helps with the sexual temptation. But yeah, in general, I think you need an answer. I think Paul would tell us you need an answer. I, there might be answers. I'm not saying it's definite. One of the biggest things is to make sure you're convinced this is the one for you. And maybe you're using these other circumstances in life, knowingly or unknowingly, that mm, you're not actually sure about this person. So maybe be careful about pushing someone, right, based on the explicit text here. Um, I am, I'm a hu- personally a huge believer uh, in very short engagements, like six months, way too long. Because if you've chosen the one, let's get on with it. Um, and I think that I do have the Spirit of God, so that's my judgment. <laughs> so, yeah, you bet. You know, and some of you for five years, and you've, your marriage broke up 10, 15 years later, so, I mean, you, you never know, know, right? Regarding the uh, number seven about being equally yoked, it's... Um, as I age, I mellow out on my doctrinal differences between other Protestants. And I much prefer someone who loves the Lord than someone who loves pedo-baptism. Or, you know what I'm saying? And, for example, my daughter who grew up in this church and is now attending a Reformed Baptist church, is all concerned about what to do with her children. And I go, don't worry about it, man. Whatever you do, I'm cool with it. And I I think that's, as long as they're not equal, unequally yoked regarding faith, but when you get down to doctrinal differences, and I even find that in family, you know, I mean, I just praise God that some family is saved even if they, you know, they're, their theology is only a quarter inch deep, but and I, I think that should be true with marriage too, that if you, you know, and God is um, sovereign in all this, and and if you look how unequally yoked me and Terry were when we got married, you would be blown away. She was the true spiritual leader, and I was just so good looking, she couldn't help herself. <laughs> 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 yeah, she said she repented. Would you mind passing that down? I think marriage is a little bit risky, and I don't know if it's God's sovereign will, our permissive will, who we are married to, and as we grow older, maybe one matures more, maybe one doesn't, but I just want to say that in all of it, you know, you, you stay together, and it matures you even more, you know, to, to grow through the difficulties, you know. So it's not so easy, and we're not so perfectly paired. It matures you, and it refines you as you learn to, you know, maybe learn to just deny yourself and forgive and be the ones that move on, you know, with, with the relationship. <laughs> And kind of to uh, Austin's question as well, and yours. You know, if you're waiting to, when I, Gwen and I were dating, and we broke up one night, and then the guy I was staying with at this conference said, why? Why are you going to let her get away? He said, well, I kind of want to go play soccer when I want. I'm not really to grow up. I just got out of college. He's like, we'll decide to grow up. 
Like it was over like that. And next day we were back on and engaged a month later. Um, at least that's how it worked in ours. Y you're gonna, you are gonna, <laughs> nothing will develop you like <laughs> and mature you like having a spouse. Again, I don't want you to rush into it and develop in the wrong way, but yeah, you will develop 10 times faster with a spouse and then with children. <laughs> you will learn patience and sanctification like no one else. Maybe one more. Right after Annie and I got married, and I guess over the last 12 years of being married, what I've kind of learned is that um, I think we underestimate just how much cultural pathology and cultural, the way our American culture interprets relationships, colors the way we view marriage, family, and that kind of a thing. And so I think a lot of times we make these decisions based on rom-coms and based on I Kiss Dating Goodbye and based on like the pop uh, the pop evangelicalism rather than what scripture tells us to do. So, you know, there's room in scripture for, you know, in First, uh, First Thessalonians 4, um, you know, it says, you know, this is the will of God, your sanctification in the, in the context of sexual immorality, right? And so that's going to look different for everybody in the church. Um, you know, and when the disciples are talking to Jesus about should we marry, should we not? You know, we talk, he starts talking about eunuchs. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Not everybody. But we are going to be there one way or the other sometime, either before marriage or after a spouse passes away or whatever the case may be. So every single one of us is going to look, it's going to look different for every single one of us based on the way God has it unfold. And the church needs to help us think through that in a biblical context, individualized for that situation based on God's word rather than our culture, right? Um, and so, you, you know, oh, hey, you're, you're idolizing marriage or, hey, you're doing this, you're doing that wrong. Maybe. Um, but you're still talking about this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, rather than, well, you know, I feel like this because the rom-com that I saw last night really gave, stirred up my emotions. And so if we just think with a biblical lens rather than an emotional lens, I think that's where we're going. Well, we are in a body. So you don't need to pursue these questions on your own. You would be foolish to do such a thing. So surround yourself. Older and wiser people and your peers. Right? Let's, th there are some very huge pastoral issues in these things. These are not black and white. As Mark said, I think the older I grow, the more I recognize that. And the, uh, I can't remember the year that, I remember when I prepped for that divorce and remarriage class, I read a, um, it's kind of a general assembly circular. It wasn't ever like put into authoritative status. I don't understand the words, but they have a pretty big thing on divorce and remarriage and it's really pastoral. It's really, really good. It's worth looking at. So my major emphasis is to look at our status in life as a calling, as giftedness, to live in that present. Always think of every condition, what type of job you're in, what kind of neighborhood you're in, everything, what city you live in, to look for opportunities for the effectiveness of the gospel. Use your marriage, use your singleness in that way. And be praying to God for wisdom for the future as always. Now, I'm, uh, I will be back one more Sunday, and then I'll be gone for three months, so I need accountability. If any men out there want some accountability, um, I would love. If you feel like that's maybe that's safer from afar through a phone call, I would love to partner with you over the next few months, so please give me a call or anything else I can be praying for. I'll have lots of time on my hands. Oh, I'll be in Jordan, and so I'd love to lift up your concerns in prayer, so uh, thank you for the prayers for our family. 
Let's close. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for a reason um, to live at all, and much less to have great purpose uh, in our lives. We pray that you didn't bring us to Spring Meadows just to tickle our ears and, and puff up our knowledge on a weekly basis. We want to be transformed by the gospel. We want to know you, know your word better, so that it will affect our own lives and that we would be equipped to share it with others. Help us to pursue discipling relationships in our body, uh, peer fellowship, but also help us to find someone older in the faith than us whom we can learn from. Help us to find someone younger in the faith who we can impart uh, the wisdom that we have to them. Help us be very active, whatever groups you call us into in the church. We pray that we wouldn't be individual Christians um, on an isolated island somewhere, that we truly would be a body. Now help us to come as a body to worship you the triune God. Uh, we look forward to singing, to praying, and to hearing your word. Uh, we pray for you to make real changes in each of our lives, um, and you, because you promised that to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.